episode number 67. If we rely on our own seichel, our own intelligence, and our own ideas, and we think we're going to live our lives that way, that's a type of avodah zarah. That's a type of idol worship. Welcome to the Torah Podcast. Lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the tools and inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Torah Podcast. The Torah portion of the week is Ve'es Hanan, How to Understand Your Limitations, the Infinite Torah. We're going to have a powerful parable about the spoon that gave birth, a great story about Rav Shach, and peace in your home, giving and receiving. And now, the Torah portion of the week, with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. So chapter 4 in Devarim starts like this. Now, O Yisrael, listen to the decrees and the ordinances that I teach you to perform, so that you may live, and you will come to possess the land that Hashem, your guide of your forefathers, gives you. You shall not add the word that I command you, nor shall you subtract from it. This is a negative commandment of Baal-Tosif, of Baal-Tikra. You shall not add and you shall not subtract. To observe the commandments of Hashem your God, that I command you. Your eyes have seen what Hashem did with Baal-Peor. For every man that followed Baal-Peor, Hashem your God destroyed him from your midst. But you who cling to Hashem your God, you are still alive today. All the Mephorshim are asking, what's the connection between the negative commandment of not adding or subtracting from the Torah to the idol worship of Baal Peor, which was defecating in front of the idol. So what's the connection between these two things? So Ramosha Feinstein wants to give an answer, and he says that adding onto the Torah is the basis of idol worship. Why? We know that the Ramban brings down that idol worship started in the door of Enosh, and they had a svar like this, they had an idea. Since God placed all the heavenly bodies above the world, it must be that he wanted us to worship them also, even though he didn't explicitly command us to worship them. And they thought these heavenly bodies are doing the work of God, so we should also give cover to them. So that was the beginning of idol worship, but it was a mistake, because it was their own svara, their own idea. Hashem never told them to worship the stars and the moon. They got the idea themselves. So doing more, doing different than what Hashem told you is the basis for idol worship, which is the connection here also. Do not add to the Torah, because then you'll even come to this degrading position of Baal Peor, which is an extension of the original idol worship. That's Rav Moshe Feinstein's answer. Rav Chaim Shmuel Lavish wants to answer by saying that if you break a fence, so the fence is useless. If there's a hole in the fence, what kind of fence is it? So once a person takes away even one mitzvah, it's like he broke the entire fence. In the end, he's going to come to do Baal Peor, the most disgusting things, because it's a breakdown of the entire system. He winds up ridding himself of all restraint. And not only that, it could also be in the opposite direction. Even if you add a mitzvah, so then you again made have cares. You created that it's an open field. You can do whatever you want. In the end, you broke down all restraint, and it's going to come to a vote of Zara which is especially about Peor, which is the whole vote of Zara, is to defecate in front of the idol, which is so there is no restraint, there is no meaning, there are no rules. So that's the connection according to Rav Chaim Shmuelavich. The Malbin wants to give an answer by saying one cannot add or subtract from something that's perfect because the commandments are from Hashem, who is the ultimate perfection, 
Therefore, the commandments themselves are perfect. How can you possibly add to them? And he wants to explain that the Jews were doing, what were they doing there, Baal Peor, when they were worshiping Baal Peor? They were trying to disgrace the idol. They thought that defecating in front of the idol was disgrace to the idol. So they thought they were doing a positive thing. But they were going against the Torah because in the end, that really is the idol worship. That's the worship to the idol. So even though they thought they were doing a positive thing, in the end, they destroyed themselves. They were all wiped out. And that was their own svara. Hashem never said to do such a thing. They, they were Ibrahim. They outsmarted themselves. That's the answer to the Malbim. But Rav Shimshon Rafael Harsh gives a different answer, which I want to expand upon. He says, if you add or take away any mitzvah, you're really saying the Torah is arbitrary. And therefore, you're denying the divinity of the Torah. And you're equating human discretion with God's commandment, which in the end is going to lead to idol worship. And that's why it's connected about pure. He brings down the case of Shaul, where he was over both these lavim. He added more and he took away something. What did he do? Shmuel Navi came to him and told him, you have to kill everybody. And he kept the king alive. And therefore he did less and he didn't listen. And he did more. He took the, thing, the spoils, which he was supposed to destroy, and he offered them as an offering. So he thought that would be a great thing. So what does the Pasuk say there? Does God delight in ascent offerings and a meal offerings as an obedience to the voice of God? Obedience is the main thing. God wants us to listen to him, not to do what we think. So why is this going to lead to a Vodazar idol worship? So Rav Hirsch explains, he does not subordinate everything to the one God. He does not set God over himself as a master of his whole fate and his whole life. Rather, he places beside God a separate independent power. He entrusts his face to all kinds of oracles, simanim, his seicho. He thinks he can get around God. And that's exactly what a Vodazari is, idol worship. He doesn't believe there's one God who controls everything. He has his own tricks up his sleeve. Don't worry, he's going to do it his way. So he says that's a gufa idol worship. This is a tremendously important idea. If we are somech, if we rely on our own seicho, our own intelligence, and our own ideas, and we think we're going to live our lives that way, that's a type of avodah That's a type of idol worship. Because what we're saying is, don't worry about God. I got God in my pocket. No problem. I'm going to do it my way, and it's going to work out. So he continues, and it's not, it says at the end of the Pasuk that those of you who cling to me today are still alive. He said that was the greatest Gilu that could exist. It was a revelation of God. Why? Because the people saw through their obedience by not clinging to Baal Peor, by not worshiping Baal Peor, though those people who didn't worship, they lived. And all the people who did worship, they died. There was a clear example of Midas Adin, of judgment, which doesn't all happen too often in life. Everything's mixed up. We're confused. We, we don't see the justice. But that was a clear example of justice, which is the same idea. If you go in the way of God, that's how you're going to be Matzliach. That's how you're going to be successful. He explains further, this was said just before they're about to go into the land. This is unbelievable. you got to hear this. He says, you are the only nation in the world that possessed laws before it possessed its own land. In other words, we got our laws before we got our land. Most nations that go into a land, when they have a land, they have to make laws. He says, by us, it's just the opposite. It's not that the laws are intended as a mean to build up the land and have a national existence. It's just the opposite. 
We're given the land in order that we should fulfill the laws. Unbelievable. Every other nation becomes a nation through its land and afterwards creates laws for your land. You, by contrast, become a nation through the Torah. And you receive the land in order to observe the Torah. And that's why your laws never change. The Torah doesn't change. The whole purpose of life is to fulfill the Torah. But those nations who have laws in order to keep things going, in order to keep the land going, so the laws are constantly changing, he says. Because there's changing needs of the nation's development. But you were given laws by Moshe Rabbeinu, who never stepped foot in the land. Nothing to do with the land. The land is the means to fulfill the Torah. Not that the Torah is the means to be able to live in the land, because you can't live in the land without laws. No, it's the opposite. The laws of the Torah are absolute, whereas you and your land are conditional, he says. And this is why God put together in the Pusik, not to add or subtract from the Torah, together with the idol worship. Because if you rely on yourself, in your own cycle, in your own intelligence, that is the kind of an avodah Because you don't trust in God and you don't trust in his Torah. I just want to tell you what Schwab said on the second Pusik in this week's Parsha. It says, My Lord Hashem Elohim, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. You have just begun. So what does Rev Schwab say? He says, Moshe three times spent 40 days in the heavens with Hashem, as close as a man could possibly be to Hashem. And after all that, it was only after 121 years where he's about to pass away that Moshe says, you have just begun to show your servant your greatness. The Torah is infinite. Why would we think with our small P minds that we know what life is about, that we know what's going on here? We like landed here from another planet. We're born here and, and we know what's going on. We understand what life is about. We understand how the planets work. We, we don't understand hardly anything. And Moshe Rabbeinu, he himself said, I only understand everything. After, after all he's been through, with all of his nevuah, his prophecy and everything, and he brings the Pasuk, Gali and I uncover my eyes, and I shall gaze upon the wonders of your Torah. Pasuk at Tehillim, 119.18. There is endless chedushim, new ideas, novel ways, another way of looking. Every time you learn the Gemara, it's a new Gemara. Every time you go over it again, you see another chedush. So how can we possibly have the chutzpah to think that we can add or subtract from the Torah? It's a ridiculous idea. We're going to bring it down to our level, to human level, to human intelligence. Once you bring it down to human intelligence, that's the end of the whole Torah. Like Rechaim Shmuel Levitch says, you break the fence. You don't have a fence anymore. It's finished. So what's the solution to this problem? How do we save ourselves? So the Torah itself tells us, two more pesukim forward, we see the Pesach says, and you shall safeguard and perform them. For it is your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the people, so shall hear. All these statutes will say, Surely a wise and understanding people is this great nation. So Rashi says there, What does it mean you shall safeguard them? He says, This is study. You have to learn. And the Sifri says there, Study of the commandments of the Torah constitutes safeguarding, for knowledge of them is the best guarantee of their continued fulfillment. So Ramosha Feinstein explains, You have to learn from a Rebbe. You have to go to yeshiva. You have to learn from teachers. And if not, you're going to wind up like Enosh, who had his own ideas of what to do. Worship the stars. Sounds like a good idea. Worst thing in the world. It's only through learning the Torah that we mechazek ourselves. So we understand what the Torah is saying, 
how it's being said, why it's being said, what are the inferences we can make, what are the ones that are mukrak, forced inferences and not forced inferences, what's the logic behind it, does it make sense, doesn't it make sense, back and forth, reading all the Meforshim, understanding the truth of the Torah, seeing how it fits, how the whole Torah fits together, does it make sense? To the point that it does make sense because we have to validate the Torah. That's what it says in Dark and Gemara. We're the ones that have to understand the Torah. If we don't understand it, it means that we're empty. Like Chazal says, if the Torah is empty, it's your emptiness. And if not, God forbid, someone can wind up doing a Vodazara idol worship. He relies on all kinds of forces and all kinds of things to get him through life to be successful. But the real success is to go in the way of the Torah. That's the success. And that's what Hashem says. And that's what we're here for, to fulfill the Torah. I just want to end off here with this beautiful thing that Rav Schwab says. He says, one time the president of a conservative synagogue came to him to speak to him. And he says, I don't really understand. We're very traditional. And he added, I even put on tefillin today. I'm very traditional. What's the problem with our approach? So Rav Schwab says to him, I'm not really interested in traditional Judaism. As a matter of fact, I could even do without it altogether. So the conservative rabbi says, what is he talking about? What is he saying? Rev Schwab continued, Tradition leaves me cold. Just because my father did something doesn't mean I have to do the same thing. If my father wore long wool stockings, does that mean I can't wear cotton ones? So the conservative rabbi doesn't know what's going on. He says, what's going on here? You're not interested in tradition? Then why would you put on tefillin every day if you're not interested in tradition? So Rev Schwab answers him. He says, it says in this week's Parsha, and these words I shall command you today. And Rashi says there that this verse teaches us not to look at the mitzvahs as some kind of ancient custom, but rather to look at them as if they were given today for the first time. He said, I put on tefillin because Hashem's telling me to put on tefillin. Not my grandfather and not my great-grandfather. Hashem's commanding me today to put on tefillin. He says, even though I'm very proud and happy that all my ancestors kept the Torah, but this is not the reason why I keep them. I keep them because Hashem's telling me today to keep the Torah. And it's the same exact Torah that we received from Sinai. We can't add to it. We can't subtract to it. It's perfect like the Malbin says. It's infinite. It's beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension. We'll do our best. We have to go to what's according to what's written. And it's scholarship. It's not a joke. You just make up whatever you want. So I have a copy of this letter that Rev Schwab wrote to a different conservative rabbi who decided that it's better to drive on Shabbos because we can have much more people inside the Beit Knesset that way. Otherwise, if we don't drive on Shabbos, not too many people come. So Rev Schwab gave six reasons why his logic is wrong. First of all, the Torah is from Sinai. It says to keep Shabbos. You can't change it. Second of all, specifically, driving on Shabbos, there's sparks of the ignition, there's lighting the fire, there's the burning of the fuel. No matter how much you twist it and turn it, you can't tell me that it's permitted. It's Aish, it's Binyan. There's, there's no way around it. Third of all, it's just the opposite. The shul is there so people should keep Shabbos. Not that people should break Shabbos in order to come to shul. We have shuls in order that people should stay religious. The fourth thing he says, Judaism without Shabbos is unthinkable. But Judaism without a Beit Knesset is thinkable. He said for generations we didn't have public places. We couldn't meet together in public. And Judaism continued. So why are you putting people coming to Shul above Shabbos? The fifth reason he gives, 
that if a person does not come to Shul because he lives far away, he has done more for Judaism than any Jew who drives on Shabbos who comes to Shul. What's this guy doing? By staying home, you're fulfilling the mitzvah. And the sixth thing, for those people who live a little bit farther away and they walk to Shul, every step they take is Kadosh Kadoshim. It's a holy avoda. He's worshiping Hashem every step he takes, the mysterious nefesh that he has to get to Shul on Shabbos. So he concluded, indeed, numbers don't count. What was he telling him? If you go according to your own svara and your own ideas about what Judaism is about, so you have this great idea in numbers. You know, we get more people in Shul. More people in Shul means better Judaism, right? Wrong. Judaism is what the Torah tells us. We have to fulfill the Torah. And the Torah is perfect just the way it is, like the Malbun said. The Torah is perfect. What are you trying to change it for? And if a person doesn't subordinate himself to God, that's a Vodazara. We have to do exactly, exactly what the Torah says, not to add and not to take away. Here is a powerful parable. Open your mind and help you reach your potential. The Magin Madhuvim brings a mushroom like this. He says, one time a neighbor came to borrow a spoon. Fine, the next day the guy came to bring it back, and he brought back with it a little teaspoon. So the guy who lent it out said, listen, I only lent you one spoon. He said, it's true, but this spoon gave birth to this little spoon, so I'm giving you back two. So he didn't say anything, he thought the guy's crazy, and he took the two spoons. Next day he comes by, he wants to borrow a cup. Fine, lends him a cup. The next day the guy comes back and brings back the cup, and he brings a smaller cup with it. So the guy thought, obviously this guy's crazy, he just took the two cups, he didn't say anything to him. A week later, the guy comes by to borrow two silver candlesticks. He says, wow, this is great. He's probably going to give me back four. I'm surely going to lend him these two silver candlesticks. So after a while, he saw the guy didn't bring them back. He starts to ask him, where are they? He said, listen, I'm sorry, your candlesticks died. The guy says to him, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Did you ever hear of candlesticks that die? So he said back to him, and did you ever hear of spoons or cups that give birth to another one? And you took him without a word. If a spoon can give birth, so then candlesticks can die. So what's the nimshah? He says, so too mitzvahs. Mitzvahs have to be done exactly. If you think you can add to the mitzvahs, you're also going to think that maybe you could subtract from them. It just shows you that your logic is wrong. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. The Pasuk says, But all who cling to Hashem your God, you are alive today. So the Nefesh Chaim explains what is clinging to God. It means learning Torah. And when you learn Torah, you should have intention that you're clinging to God himself. So one time there was a young man who came to Rav Shach with serious financial pressures. So he didn't know what to do. He's thinking, I'm going to have to go out to work. Let me go ask Rav Shach. So he spoke with Rav Shach. And Rav Shach agreed. Things are quite difficult. I think you're going to have to go into business. So the young man turned to leave. Feeling relief, at least he solved his suffix, his doubt. But on the way out, he heard, Rav Shach gave a sigh, and he was speaking to himself. He says, true, he must leave learning, but how can he leave learning? How can he leave the base Midrash, the source of pure water, the wellsprings of the Torah? So when this young man heard this, he went back into Rav Shach. He said, listen, the Rosh Hashivah sigh tipped the scale. I'm staying in learning. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. Rev. Simka Cohen speaks about giving and receiving. Tremendous chedushim here. These are novel ideas. you got to hear them. 
So he says that everybody knows that a shopkeeper will stand for hours waiting for customers, trying to make money. But it's not because he cares about his customers. He's not being altruistic. He wants to make profit. And also the customers, they're coming. They're not just giving sadaka. They want to buy what they need. So both the shopkeeper and the customer are really looking out for their own self-interest. And that's how the system works. But it works because both sides get what they need. Not only that, but a good salesperson will give emotional gratification to the, their people. He'll smile at them. He'll ask after their health. He's polite to them. He remembers their names. He knows that the customers are basically self-centered. So he tries to be polite to them. It's like if you would go to an influential person. So you're thinking on the way, what can I say to this guy to influence him? How is he going to help me? How am I going to treat him in a special way? Make a good impression upon him. So everybody knows that's the way the world works. But why did Hashem make it that way? So he says that since every human being is created in the image of God, he has a certain self-worth. He's created with an ego, a sense of self-importance. He knows he has a unique position in the world. And therefore, on the negative side, we have an egocentric attitude. Like it says, Bishvil li nivra'olam, the whole world's created for me, the Prakiyabal says. But it's a healthy feeling. That's the way Hashem made us. And why Hashem made us like that? So that we would be ethical. We want to do the right thing. We have a certain self-worth that we feel we have to do the right thing and we want to grow. So he says, unfortunately, nobody likes to hear this. He says, nobody wants to admit. But really, people just love themselves. And not only that, everybody's out for personal benefit. And before a person gets married, he asks himself, what am I getting out of this? He's usually not asking, what is my spouse going to get out of this? And even if he asks, what are we both going to get out of this? So he's really just wondering what he's going to get out of it. He's like, I hope the bank is okay. He's not worried about the bank. He's worried about his money, but he hopes that the bank does well. So one time the Kutzka Rebbe wanted to show this concept to the students. So he saw one of his students eating a fish with a lot of gusto. So he asked him, why are you eating that fish? He says, I love fish, so I eat it. He says, you don't love fish. He says, you love yourself. If you love the fish, you would put him in a pool and get clean water for him and feed him. And there's another story I heard one time, one of the Bali Musser asked one of the Talmudim to bring him a tea. So the Talmud said, of course I can. I said, can you bring me a tea? Yes, of course. So he brings him a tea. He says, thank you very much. He says, did you bring the tea to me? You didn't bring it for me. You brought it for yourself. You want to do a mitzvah. You feel like you're doing the right thing. You have your reasons why you brought it. Did you really bring it for me? You really care about me that I should have a tea? Or you just brought it for yourself? And this is what he says. He says, when a person says, I love you, what he really means is I'm attracted to you. I find it pleasant to be around you. I enjoy your interest in me. I like being charmed by you. So even though these things are very difficult to hear, but in the end, we're going to understand them a little bit better. So the question is now, well, why does a person help? Why does the person give if he just cares about himself? So he gives an example. Let's say you see an old man carrying a heavy box. And what are you going to do? You see the guy. So what motivates you to help the guy? There's different reasons. Maybe you have a desire to do a mitzvah. You do a mitzvah. Or you have pity on the person. Or you just brought up as a kid that, that should help. Or you're worried that your consciousness is going to bother you later. So you help now. Or you actually get pleasure from helping. But still, it's your pleasure. Or you'd like to see a world where everybody helps. So he wants to go through all these different reasons and show how each one is really actually self-serving. So even though a guy says he wants to see a world where everybody helps, what he's really saying, he's saying that in the end, I'm going to get some help also. That's like communism. I'm willing to share because I want to get. Or, for example, he has pity. So he wants to get rid of his feelings. He wants to get rid of those feelings. So he helps the guy. 
or if it could be or it could be because of the influence of his upbringing. So he has to do it because that's who he is. He was uh, he was trained that way. He has a mindset to help, or else he feels uncomfortable if he doesn't act according to who he is, or he wants to avoid the pangs of his consciousness, or even if he does it for a mitzvah. What's the mitzvah? He's doing it because he wants eternal reward. Or if, surely if he gets pleasure, he personally gets pleasure from helping somebody else. So he says, these ideas are a little bit difficult to digest. And you hear them and say, whoa, you know, like, uh, what, am I that self-centered? Nobody wants to feel they're self-centered. But most of it is subconscious. We don't realize how self-centered we are. So the question is, why did Hashem create us this way? Hashem doesn't make us bad, right? Evil. Hashem created us to be good. So the answer is that this self-centeredness can be a positive force or a negative force. For example, parents raise their children because they look at the children as an extension of themselves. But that's how they wind up raising healthy children. Or a person would never grow if he wasn't self-centered. He wouldn't grow spiritually. He wouldn't do anything. And the advancement of the world is based on the fact that man is self-centered. Spiritually, physically, the world wouldn't advance. So the same thing with your family, with your spouse. And you have to remember your spouse is an ordinary person. A regular person who's also self-centered with personal interest. Nobody gets married because they say, wow, I wish I could find this wretched, poor, ill person that I could help. Who gets married for that reason? You ask yourself, can this person support my material needs? Can this person support my emotional needs? What about my spiritual advancement? These are the normal questions that a healthy person asks themselves. He doesn't ask, what's my spouse going to get from me? He asks himself, what am I going to get out of this marriage? But if it wasn't for that, if the other person didn't need you, so there'd be no relationship. These needs are what cause the relationship to exist. And you don't want to be in a situation where your spouse doesn't need you at all. He gives an example like this. He has his shidduch, he's going out with this girl, and he's about to get married. And then he meets a friend and he realizes, hey, you know, this guy would be a better match for my shidduch. Does he stop the marriage and say, you know, it's better for you to marry this guy? No. <laughs> That's not what happens. He continues on and he marries the girl because he likes her. So if this is all true, we have to go back to the shopkeeper. Part of marriage is giving your spouse what they desire to fulfill their needs, just like you would any other person out in the street. But it's much easier to people on the street. Of course, you have to be polite on the guy on the outside. And when it comes to your wife, you think you don't have to be polite. You think you're entitled. And you don't ask in a gracious manner what matters. Now, where does that come from? That comes from childhood. Why? Because parents give to their kids unconditionally. Without manners, with manners, they give to their kids. The kid doesn't have to ask twice. The parent anticipates what the need of the kid is and gives it to the kid even before the kid knows he needs it. And we expect when it comes to a marriage, it should be the same way. Somehow when it comes to a spouse, it's somehow they should be like our parent. But really, they're more like the guy outside. They're more like the neighbor who doesn't owe you anything. They're more like your peers, people you have to be polite to, you have to give cover to, you have to be nice to, and then they'll give you. That's more what the spouse is like. That's what a shalom bias is. It's not like your mother and your father. But most people don't know this. Most people think that I should be getting unconditionally without having to ask. My spouse should be anticipating what I need. And what happens when they don't do that? We're disappointed. We have unrealistic expectations. Say, what's going on here? And we feel like we're in an unsuccessful relationship. But that's coming from us because we have too high expectations. We should be saying, 
If you please, could you help me do this? Please, can you help me do that? Would it be a big deal if you could do this for me? Just like you do to your peers. And you say thank you afterwards. But the problem is if your friend doesn't do what you want, so you walk eventually you walk away from that person. When it comes to a marriage, you're stuck there. You don't just walk away. So the other person starts to feel they're being used. And a lot of resentment builds up in the marriage. So in order to solve all these problems, we need two things. First, we need to understand the emotions involved in giving and receiving. And second of all, we need techniques to help us be successful in this. I know this is a bit of a cliffhanger, but next week we will speak about it. So that's it for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and please share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. To get more enthusiasm for your Judaism, become a free member at globalyeshiva.com.